Uh, last week, Pastor Mo let us show well as we talked about revenge and forgiveness. And so today we get to look at conflict. Um, and for those of us who just cringed a little bit, um, just know that there's hope that lies um, awaiting for all of God's people, um, that he cares for us and loves us. And so we get to take a look at that today. But um, before we read God's word, um, well, actually, let's go ahead and read God's word and then we will ask God for his help. There's going to be a several passages of scripture um, kind of given out today, um, but there's one umbrella verse that I think will help us fully grasp about God's concern and his ideas um, or his thoughts as it pertains to conflict. And that's going to come from Proverbs 28 verses 25 and 26. And the text reads as follows. A greedy person stirs up conflict, but whoever trusts in the Lord will prosper. The one who trusts in himself is a fool, but one who walks in wisdom will be safe. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we're grateful to be called your children. We're grateful that through your son, Jesus Christ, that we have been brought into your family and you don't view us merely as servants, but you view us as friends. You've adopted us to be your children, God. And if we're your children, then that means you have unconditional love and affection for us. There's nothing that can separate us from your love, God. And so I pray that this morning, God, would we um, understand that just ever so, ever so clear and ever so fully that we, Father, would echo the prayer of Paul, that all of us would, um, that we'd be strengthened in the inner parts of our souls, that we as your people, that we would see Jesus as ultimate and as reigning and that we would desire for him to dwell richly in our hearts, God. Father, we pray that you would do what only you can do, which is to give us new desires and thirst and hunger for the things that you love, namely yourself. Father, I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would find our place as in a position of complete surrenderance to you, knowing that you've been so good to us and we have not deserved it at all. God, will we comprehend that much more how how gracious you've been to us, Father. And at the end of the day, would we do nothing more than celebrate and worship and proclaim that you are a God who has redeemed those to be the, to be your own. And as a result, Father, we would declare to the whole world that you are God on the throne, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help us to have ears to hear, but hearts hearts willing to obey you, God, not looking at your word as something burdensome to us, but looking at it as something delightful for our souls. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A couple of weeks ago, I just so happened to be minding my business and while I was minding my business, there was this person who decided that they wanted to challenge me to a pound cake competition. And in being challenged in this pound cake competition, it was at that moment that I realized that sometimes as you're going along with your every, every day or ever going along your business, that sometimes conflict ends up coming your way. And so what this person didn't know is that for the last decade, I had refined my mother's recipe to the point that I knew all of the right ingredients to put in this cake. 
I knew the type of flour that you needed to put into this cake in order to make it moist and fluffy. I knew the type of butter you needed to use to give it a, a richness and a color that would, when it hit your palate, it would just explode. I knew the right kind of vanilla extract, not the imitation extract, but the right kind of extract that would, as you bit into this cake, it would just spill over with drool. What they didn't know is that they had picked a fight with the wrong person. You see, sometimes with conflict, our pride and our ego, especially when we think we do something well, it gets in the way and it causes us to look to other people to stir up some mess. It causes us to view people as somehow standing in the way of what we truly desire, which in some cases is um, applause or respect. You see, the reality is, is that when it comes to conflict, oftentimes we will be quick to look at somebody else rather than stopping first to look and say, hey, what's what's wrong with me? How many of relationships have you um, seen or in your own life that are have been left in a ruin all because of how you handled or mishandled conflict? How many tears have you wept at night thinking back about relationships that you no longer have all because you were so willing, you were so eager to fight to try to be, to try to fight to be right in the relationship rather than being willing to fight for the relationship? The reality is that when we think about conflict, so many of us have been so hurt and the sting of it has, has, has left so many wounds that have been unhealed that when we, when we are confronted with anything, we'd rather have nothing to do with it at all. Conflict is something to be avoided. It's not something to be resolved. What I hope to do and what I hope that God will open our eyes to in his word this morning is that that when we think about conflict, um, it's not that we should look for peace outside of conflict. But it's rather that we should look for peace or find peace in its resolution. God is going to show us that when he when he discusses conflict or the way in which we need to think about conflict should be from the lens of him using it in our lives as a necessary tool to expose the true us. Him using it to expose our misguided and misled desires and fears, but for a purpose. And that purpose being for him to use our conflict or the conflict that we experience to produce in us desires and wants and appetites that will lead to greater enjoyment of him and with others. Conflict is not something that we should avoid, but conflict for us as Christians, it's something that we should embrace. Because the conflict that we experience with one another provides us all with an opportunity to put someone on display that's different than what everybody else has ever seen. If I were to put it in simpler terms, I would say that conflict may not always be what you want. But conflict is definitely something that you need. And that leads to my first point, which is this. This is what we need to understand about conflict. And the very first thing is that conflict teaches us about ourselves. Conflict 
teaches us about ourselves. All throughout Proverbs, you've got about 16 or 17 verses of detailing what conflict is and how, how we should think about it and handle it. However, unlike some of the other topics we've discussed so far in Proverbs, what you'll find in Proverbs is, is that the writers don't so much give us this list of how-tos in how to handle conflict. What the writer actually is doing is they're going to give us these descriptors of types of people whom, whom, based on their substance of their lives, start the output or the overflow of their lives begins to spill out on other people. In particular, that verse that we read earlier, it defines two people, the greedy person, the one who trusts in self, but then the alternative is the person who placed their trust in Christ. There's two individuals, and so we're going to first look at the first individual, the greedy person. Somebody look to your neighbor and say, let's talk about it. One of my favorite shows uh, these days on Netflix is called Making a Murderer. Some of y'all probably watched it. Well, season two just dropped last week, and I've already, unashamedly, I've already completed the entire series. However, in my binge watching, what was so unique about this season was last season, I thought, based on all the evidence, there's really no way that this man could still be in prison. Based on all of the facts and all of these discrepancies of the evidence that they've pulled up and kind of stripped apart. And, and all, there's just no way that anyone could deny that this man, Stephen Avery, who has been um, who has been put in jail, not for the first time, but for the second time, the first time. Uh, DNA evidence showed that he was innocent of his charges. And now again, for something, a completely different crime, the man finds himself in prison. Well, one thing that was peculiar about this show was that um, it just reminded me of how so often um, the world and even us ourselves will define people on the basis of their flaws. You see, guilty people are defined on the basis of what they do or don't do. They've already titled the show Making a Murderer because it's assumed that this man is guilty. Yes, he's in jail, but all evidence would point to show that things aren't really just lining up. In this text, the writer doesn't detach greed from the identity of the individual. He doesn't detach it and say that greed is something that um, this person just does or that there's certain areas of his life that are, 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 are that he displays greed. No, the text would say that this person is a greedy individual. That within this person, the Hebrew word for person actually describes it as um, uh, that word should be interpreted as his entire essence, his entire makeup, his appetites, his affections, his desires. It's not just about what he does. It's about who he is. He's greedy. Think of this person as somebody with this black hole of desires. All he wants is more and more and more and more and more. More love and affection. And so he looks to women to fill that void. More significance. So he looks to a platform and he's willing to jump over people in order to get what he wants. More acceptance. And so he's willing to... He's willing to do anything and everything to get the applause of others. There's never anything enough, anything good enough for him to find any type of satisfaction. He's greedy. But what is the source? 
Not only is this man greedy, but his greed overflows and spills out onto other people. The text says that he, in his greed, stirs up conflict. James, as we just read earlier in the service, uh, but we're going to read it again. James 4, it says, what is the source of our wars and fights among you? Don't they come from the passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and you wage war. You do not have because you do not ask and you ask and don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives. You would rather spend it all on all of your own pleasures. Isn't this the human condition? Isn't this who we are? People who look to anything and everything to meet our own needs. People aren't objects to be served. They're objects to serve us. Don't our desires often play tricks on us? Isn't it easy for us, even as Christians, if we were going to be honest here today, isn't it easy for us to even allow certain desires or statements that we make to kind of deceive other people? We'll say we're concerned about God's mission and we'll 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 be quick to take a picture and put it on Facebook with somebody, a homeless person that we sat next to or we met and we gave a couple dollars to. But underneath that all, is there really a genuine love and concern for that person? Or were you really just using them to have a photo op so that other people would give you the attention that you're longing for? In my own heart, I can see ways in which um, these desires that I may say, oh yeah, God, I want to give you the glory and I want to make sure that I give all of my life to you. But underneath it all, if I'm honest, sometimes I've I've got to confess to God, God, When I send that text asking for prayer, I really could care less. In my heart, I'm really just performing and doing a task that I know I should do. But to the other person, they'll never know that. And so they'll still view me as a good pastor. It's quiet in here, but can we be real? Our heart is so deceitfully wicked. That we'll take good things and even God things so that we can somehow promote and perpetuate our own lust. And the the bad thing, though, with that is that we think that we can contain our own sin. We think that we can contain our selfish motives and desires and think that it's not going to impact somebody else. Here's the reality. The things going on in your heart will spill out onto the people that you love the most. You can't hide your heart from other people. God's wired us to the very thing that's in us. Just based off of us talking, eventually it'll come out. And eventually people will catch on to the reality that, yeah, you're saying all the right things, but there's a deficit there. Yeah, you can check off all of the right answers and all the right quotes and all the right authors, but there's, there's, there's an emptiness to it. Conflict has a way of taking, for example, this, this empty bottle that we fill with water And we take the lid off, and when conflict comes, it it shakes the bottle up. And in it shaking that bottle up, what comes out is this this water spills out all over the place. Now, the thing is not whether or not something's coming out of the bottle. The important thing is what's in the bottle in the first place. 
What does your life really look like? What are you feasting on? What are you filling yourself with? And if we're not filling ourselves with God and his word, if we're not savoring and saturating ourselves in the things of God, then, then guess what? You don't have to run to other things in order to fill you up. You've already been filled with enough selfish desires and greed and wickedness that you can just do nothing at all and you'll just be. It's when we feast on God's word and when we enjoy the things that God wants for us that somehow that, that, that wickedness, that selfishness begins to get pressed out and filled with selflessness and the things that God loves. So that when we live our lives, what spills out onto other are the fruits of his spirit. When someone stands in the way of what we really want, they become public enemy number one. Think about it. If you're hungry and you got that friend that goes into your fridge and eats the last thing in your fridge. And that moment that you go to open it to satisfy your need, you realize that that other person had robbed you of that joy. You're angry. They ain't a friend no more. We've got a problem. But here's the thing, y'all. We may never say in our anger or when we don't get things, we, never, we may never say out loud what really goes on in our heart. But the reality is we, we love ourselves so much that when those things happen, when those things impact us and happen in our lives, what we really wish we could say was, don't you know who I am? How dare you not give me what I want? I'm kind of a big deal. I, I, you may not know that yet, but I, I want to let you know I'm kind of a big deal, so don't treat me that way. I've seen this play out in my own life so many times where um, someone will offend me. And I'll be quicker to go and talk to other people unrelated to the situation than I will go and actually talk to that very person. And there's folks in this church as well that when you get offended by your brother and sister in Christ, you'll be quick to go talk to your best friend. You'll be quick to even call us as, uh, as one of your pastors. And you'll talk to all these different people, probably being reminded of what God's standard is in his word. But then when we push back and ask you the question, have you talked to that individual yet? Ah, oh, no, I haven't talked to him yet. I got to pray on that, pastor. I got to pray on that. Wait, 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 hold up. What do you mean you got to pray on it? God has made it clear that when we think about confrontation, God has already listed out a pathway in which for us to walk. He says that when we've offended or been offended by somebody, that we are to go to our brother and sister. And guess what he says? Privately. So when the greed in your own hearts or in our hearts boils up to the point to where we want to get retaliation on somebody. Because things aren't adding up the way that we thought they should. The church doesn't look the way that you thought it should. The pastor didn't preach that sermon the way you thought it should. These people didn't give you the respect that you thought they should. You name it. The first thing that we would run to is not in obedience to God and seeking to reconcile with our brother or our sister or whoever has offended us. The thing that we run to is an opportunity 
to retaliate, retaliate, not by openly being divisive, but by merely planting subtle seeds. If I can just drop a hint or two of my, you know, that old girl said this to me. And then somebody asks, well, tell me more. That gives me that opportunity to, to just bleed, out loud, bleed all out on them. That what we've done is not only are we gossiping, but now we've invited other people to partake in our sin. And now they sin because they entertain you and listen to all of your filth. When in the very first place, all they should have said was, hey, let me stop you right here. Tell me how I can pray for you real quick and I'll pray. But before you share anything else, you need to actually go back to that individual and have a conversation. And then here's what I'm going to do for you because I love you so much. In a week, I'm going to follow back up with you. I'm going to make sure you had that conversation. And I'm going to make sure that you fight for unity in our body and you don't give Satan a foothold because you, you think that you can just ignore your heartache, ignore your pain. You've been deceived. It will manifest itself in other ways. Maybe not with that person, but with somebody else. I guarantee you, we'll have a lot less chatty folk in this church. And it's not to be rude, y'all. It really isn't. It really isn't to make fun of anyone. It's to say that as Christians, God's called us to a higher standard. And if you haven't learned yet, you haven't been around the block enough yet, what may seem as a harmless or casual conversation can divide and destroy not only individual relationships, but the relationships that they had with that particular person and eventually an entire church. God doesn't play when it comes to division. God doesn't play when it comes to divisiveness. God doesn't play when it comes to us spreading other people's business to people who don't have anything to do with it. There's too much at stake. But not only that, we've got to take it seriously because we've got to look to God and beyond just his distaste or dislike for those things. He says in Matthew 5, 23 through 24, he says this. Take offering, take take conflict so serious with with the relationships that you have with one another that so if you are offering your gift on the altar And there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Notice it didn't say that you had something against them. It says that you know somebody's got a problem with you. Leave your gift there in the front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother and sister. And then come back and offer your gift. How many of us try to do ministry? Try to do good things for God knowing that so many people in our lives got issues with us. We want to preach. We want to share. We want to serve. But we really don't care about the relationships that our sin has impacted. We really don't care about the fact that even if I am innocent of what you say I am, I'm a distraction now for you to be able to worship freely. And that what's crazy is all it would take is a simple conversation. All it would take is an honest, hey, I was hurt by this. And then give somebody an opportunity to ask for forgiveness. That's all it would take. So if that's all it would take, why are we so scared? What fuels our desire to would rather avoid 
conflict that we know if you've been in any relationship, you know is inevitable. What would it, why is it so scary for us to just stop and pause and say, man, let me just have this conversation. Do y'all see how God is using conflict in our lives? Do you see how God is probably has purposely placed people in your life to rub you the wrong way? God has placed you in a church that doesn't meet all of your preferences for a reason. God has placed you, if you look around, he's placed you in a room such as this. Where you can look and see people who don't look like you, come from your background, have your education for a reason. And that there's purpose behind it because in all of this, we get to see our true self. We get to realize what puffs up out of our hearts when we're uncomfortable. We get to see what overflows when people don't smile at us or give us the attention that we think we deserve. We get to see what comes out of us when race issues come in the conversation. We get to see what comes out of us when the worship is not as black or as white or as whatever you want to call it, it is. But that's not a curse. That's actually a sign of God's grace for us. That God would not allow us to remain who we are, but that God would put things in us or put things around us so that he can show us a clear picture of this is where you're at and that that would point us to cry out to him to say, I don't want to remain here. I want to be more like you. Marriage. And we say it a lot. Marriage is a gift. And my wife and I have been married for 12 years. And I can tell you one thing, that there's been a lot of conflict. But the reason why I can say looking now, looking back, is that that conflict has been a gift is because it's exposed my selfishness. It exposed my impatience. It exposed my desire to build kingdom, this kingdom up where a God rules on the throne. But the reality is that that God is me. I want to rule. Give me what's due to me. And the reason why it's an ongoing gift is because God gives you a person that doesn't allow you to remain exactly who you were in the day that you married him. The reason it's a gift is because whether you know it or not, God's using that person to begin to reveal things about you that the only solution is to hit your knees. The only solution is not to look at, you need to change them, God, but it's a cry and a plea to say, God, you've got to change me or this ain't going to work. Our pride won't just manifest itself in greed. Our pride can manifest itself as, as in Proverbs 15, 18, part A says, as a being hot-tempered. We want when we want when we want it, and if we don't get it, we mad. Not little mad, but big mad. Proverbs 16, 27 through 28, it says, a worthless person digs up evil, and his speech is like a scorching fire. A contrary person spreads conflict and a gossip separates close friends. But an angry person stirs up conflict and a hot-tempered one increases rebellion. 26, 17, and 9. 
says a person who is passing by and meddles in a quarrel that's not his is like the one who grabs a dog by the ears. Like a madman who throws flaming darts and deadly arrows, so is the person who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only playing. Ouch. How much harm have we caused others casually joking about things that we really know to be true? But then when they catch us on our stuff, we're like, oh, I was just playing, bro, I was just playing. As if that somehow makes it better. But that's not even the most important thing to know. The most important thing for us to know is what does God have to say about that? How does God feel about the overflow or the posture of our hearts, the the substance of our natural makeup? Proverbs 16 or 6, 16 and 19. Turn with me. It'll be up on the screen. It says this. The Lord hates six things. In fact, seven are detestable to him. Arrogant eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that plots wicked schemes, feet eager to run the evil, a lying witness who gives false testimony, and one who stirs up trouble among brothers. You want to know who God is? Listen to what he says about himself. God hates pride. But he loves humility. He hates anyone who would exalt themselves up above other people or would think that anything that they have can be attributed to their own success or their own efforts. God hates a lying tongue. A tongue that would seek to deceive their neighbor for selfish gain. White lies don't pass the test of whether God accepts that or approves of that. White lies even are things that offend a holy and perfect God. He hates hands that shed innocent blood because he's for justice. He hates a heart that plots wicked schemes because he's for the betterment of people and serving others rather than being served himself. He hates a lying witness, but he hates someone who stirs up conflict among brothers. God loves relationships. He created us for relationships. And so when we decide that we want to meddle and we want to get involved and we want to do things in order to lead to the destruction of relationships that he intends to flourish and prosper, he has a problem with it. There's no coincidence that as God defines what he hates, that he uses body parts that make up the human being. The eyes, the feet, the hands, the In a sense, we've got to understand that our desperate condition is that apart from God, we're lost. Apart from God intervening, we're hopeless. But I'm grateful that the story doesn't stop there. The verse doesn't just stop at the greedy are those that stir up conflict. The verse continues by saying, but those that trust in the Lord, but whoever trusts in the Lord will prosper. What does that have to do with conflict in relationships? I'm glad you asked. I mentioned earlier, my wife and I, we've been married for 12 years and there's been conflict at times. And if we're honest, I think too often in Christian circles, man, we we portray this 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 image of marriage as if it's all bees and honey and. 
And the reality is when we get into premarital, as pastors, when we get into premarital with folks, part of our responsibility is to kind of sober up their understanding of what marriage is. Because Hollywood has fed them a bunch of lies. Women believe they've been thinking about their wedding since they've been two years old. Men are like, man, I can't wait to get married because then I'm free to do whatever. Not in that way, in other ways. <laughs> but the reality is marriage can be hard because that conflict between two completely different people coming together and now becoming one, man, it's met with these sparks. These sparks, man, they can lead to you wanting to flee and want nothing to do with it. But then you have to be reminded by God that the purpose of marriage is not about the two of you. That the purpose of marriage is about you reflecting something to the world. And that if we see it through those lens that we'll be able to endure the momentary hardships that we face. That we'll be able to see rightly our purpose and our place in God's design and according to his standards. So that when she sins against me or I sin against her, I know that one day I'm going to stand before my God. And that for eternity, this argument right here isn't worth it. It's not worth sinning or reacting in my flesh because I know that one day I'll be with my God. And this hardship will pale in comparison to what he has stored up for me. In marriage, I've been at a place where I felt like, God, you must have forgotten about us because in this moment, I don't trust that you can fix it. I don't trust that you can repair this. You know how I know that for sure? It's because I stopped praying about my marriage a long time ago. I stopped praying that God would fix it because in a lot of ways, man, when I prayed, things got worse. So I said, what's the purpose? What's the point, God? Yeah, I see you at work in all these different areas of my life. But this one thing, this relationship, it's hard to trust you, God. And it wasn't until I got to a place where I could be honest enough with myself and to say enough is enough. God, I've looked at this person to be my God, to give me meet all of my needs, to give me everything that I long for. And she failed me and I'm upset only to be met with, well, what else did you expect? Why else did you think that this flawed human being could, could in any way satisfy all of the longing desires that you have? Only I can do that. And when you're in a position where you can't, you, you can't rely or depend on your own strength anymore, when you can't rely and depend on your ability to fix anything, and you've got to turn to God, and you've got to cry out and say, God, I need your help. God, I'm not who I wanted to be, and I'm not who you want me to be, but you're the only one that can fix me. There's no tools that you can use that will fix your broken heart. There's no amount of sermons that you can listen to that will change your predicament. There's no amount of accountability or community that can help change things that only God can do in your heart. There has to be a place where you say, God, if, it, if, if everything else fails, God, remind me that I, I still have you, God. Remind me that I'm still yours. 
Remind me that I'm still your child, that though I see the circumstances around me and they look bleak, God, remind me that you're with me in the wilderness. And then help me point, help me take my eyes off of my circumstances and place them on you. Jesus isn't just a God for our salvation. He's a God that has saved us for all of eternity, including right now. He's a God of our salvation, but he's a God who continues saving us day by day and moment by moment, all the way up until we get to eternity with him. If you want to look to Jesus and place your trust in him, then you've got to see a Jesus on the cross. You've got to recognize that all of us were, are greedy. All of us have wicked and evil desires and intentions within us. But it was on that cross that Jesus, the God in his flesh, God in the flesh, lays there hanging from a cross. And guess who's on the, both sides of him? A thief. And a thief. And those two thieves were there because of their greed. Their greed led them there. And because of their greed, the consequence was the sentence of death. And in between the two lies the Savior, perfect and holy and innocent unlike them. And one mocker, one thief looks to Jesus with the opportunity to place trust in him, but decides, no, I'm going to mock him. Jesus, if you're the son of God, go ahead and save us and save yourself. Ha 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 ha. But to the left. To the left. Another thief. Knowing that he deserves to be there. Knowing that he is guilty of the crimes that he committed. To that thief he says, why do you mock the God? Why do you mock God? Don't you know that he's suffering the same fate as us? And he looks to Jesus and he says, Jesus. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me, Lord. To which Jesus responds. Truly, I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Two thieves. One trusts in Jesus and spends eternity with God in paradise. The other mocks Jesus. Trusts in himself and his own abilities and spends eternity separated from him. Church, if God can raise Jesus from the dead, if God can dispense or give to us in a demonstration of his love, his only begotten son. If he can watch him die, watch him absorb all of God's wrath because of our sins. And then three days later, raise him up in victory, in power, and in strength. Then that hope right there should be enough for us to say, God, I can trust you with my heart. If I can trust you for my eternal security... And that was heavy work. But if I can trust you to change my heart. If I can look to you to remove desires and passions that don't acknowledge or live up to you. And to replace them with love and affection and patience to where my interactions with those that come at me sideways is not anger or harshness. But it's gentleness because I desire to squash beef rather than start it. If I can begin to pray for my enemies 
and love them as heaping coals up on them. That's not my motivation, but that's something God can use in order to turn an enemy into a friend. If I can now, because of what Christ has done for me, if I now can look to people, not as those that I need something from, but as those that I can give freely to. Trust in me, he says. Trust in me. That's what I want for you. That's something you can't do. Keep trying all you want. You can't do that. Jesus. Jesus, help us. I heard this story the other day just to give us a picture of what's taking place on the cross. There's these things called mountain goats. And these goats, they live on a mountain. And in living on a mountain, these goats will walk these trails that when you look at them, you really can't see how they're able to stay up on that high mountain and survive what they do. So they're grazing and they're just moving all throughout the mountain, and sometimes there's a goat that comes from the bottom of the mountain and is working its way up. And then other times, there's a, at the same time, there's a goat that's coming down from the mountain and is working his way down. And at a moment, the two cross paths, and the path is so narrow that both goats can't pass on the side of each other because one or both of them may fall to their death. The only way that this goat can get by is if one goat lays down for him and allows the other goat to climb on over. The only way, let me stop. Jesus did that for us. Jesus is the one laying his life down for us. So that now we have a picture of how we can handle conflict. That the only way to maintain peace in a church is if we both approach it from a posture of humility. If we both approach it from a place where we're willing to lay our lives down and take the L because at the end of the day, that L isn't going to stick with me into eternity. It's in that moment where we can say, God, whatever happens to me in this earth. What big deal is that? It allows us freedom to not hold grudges. Why waste time holding grudges? Don't you know that this person is going to spend the rest of eternity with you? If they are your brother and sister in Christ, don't you know that y'all going to see each other again? There's a freedom that we have because of what Jesus has done for us. That we can forgive others to what Pastor Mo taught us last week. That we can freely forgive other people. Because we know that me laying my life down for him or her, all it is is me preparing myself to meet my Savior. And I don't know about you, but I want to meet my Savior. I want to meet him knowing that I've laid my life down for other people. Because I want him to look at my life and see himself. What a beautiful picture of how conflict can be resolved so easily. But it's not enough to know that Jesus has saved us for one day when we'll be on the other side of heaven. We've got to know what God has done for us right now. And what God has done for us right now is he's allowed us to see the end of the story. He's allowed us to see a day where we all, there'll be a huge crowd of witnesses. 
And they all will be circled around a throne. And what you'll hear from this crowd of witnesses clothed in white and having palms is you'll hear this eruption of salvation belongs to our God. Over and over and over again. And then you'll see within that crowd the elders and the angels and all of creation bowing down and worshiping God who sits on the throne and his lamb. And we can read that and we could be like, man, that's dope. But we could forget that we're one of those voices. That if you have trusted in Christ, that you are one of the many, the one that the Bible says is too many to count. That is singing salvation belongs to our Lord. And in your singing, you're able to be reminded in the here and now that what I'm going through is temporary. But if I'm in that scene, then that means that. All of this other stuff that I'm going through pales in comparison. That becomes the fuel that allows us to endure and suffer well. Knowing that we have an eternal hope. And when we get to that day, we all will say, God in the most high, you did it. He did it. He did it. It didn't look like it was going to happen. It didn't look. It did not look like I was going to make it. But I am here. Because God saved me and he kept me and he made me. He brought me to the end. We can live as people who don't look at what other people do to us as a condition for how we respond to them. They don't have to be our God. No one should be able to influence how you live your life if you call yourself a child of God. We serve an audience of one. We look to only God for approval. This is our hope. This is what we place our trust in. And this is what's going to help us view everything as petty. Everything else is petty. It feels real right now. And it feels tough. And it feels hard. But when we're with him, all of that, we're not going to be talking about that. We're going to be singing praises to our king. We're going to be rejoicing in all of the people that we never knew God had saved. And we're just going to be grateful that God has kept us. Typically, that would come at the very end. But if we don't get that, if we don't understand that we've got to see ourselves clearly through God's eyes to know that there's nothing inherently good in us. That we've got to now look to Jesus as our only hope. That we can place our trust in in him. Then now we can actually start to trust him to help us live out the life that he's called us to live. A few things just to wrap up. A few things to help us manage and deal and resolve conflicts. Very simple. Before you engage in any conflict with anybody else, look in the mirror. Your first step in dealing with conflict is not going to somebody. It's going to God and asking him to search your own heart. Don't engage in any conversation with somebody where you haven't spent time in prayer. There's too much at stake. A misspoken word. Lack of care. Wrong posture, wrong whatever can sever a relationship if we let it go to God in prayer. Secondly, you initiate the conversation. Don't wait for somebody else to initiate it. You know there's a problem, you go. 
And when you go, don't be thinking about all of the things you want to tell this person about yourself. Go and you confess your sin. The things that God has revealed, the things that maybe counsel has told you about yourself. Confess those things and know that there's contributions that you've made to the situation that have brought apart, uh, brought about some type of division, some type of hardship. Thirdly, ask for forgiveness about specific things. Sometimes we can say, hey, will you forgive me? And it's just like, well, for what? What are you talking about? We got to be able to confess specifically to the best of our ability. This is how what I see in my life. This is what I see. God has revealed this to me. I know I've done these things. Will you forgive me? You got to ask for forgiveness. And then lastly, if possible, pursue the relationship. Pursue friendship. You can't be friends or the same type of friends with everybody. But you know there's relationships that you've had for years. Relationships with moms or dads that have gone sour. You know that they're just these certain relationships that you've ignored or you've thought that God can't fix it. Make an effort to pursue those things again. Not with any promise that God will fix it, but under the assurance that if God would choose to, he can. He's able. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we're grateful that, um, Lord, as Pastor John mentioned, you have you've squashed the biggest beef of all, all of eternity. That we were enemies of you and you have You've taken what we deserve and you've allowed us to place our trust in you and to um, be yours. Father, I pray that as we, even as we close, God, would we be, allow you to minister to our hearts in such a way to where we wouldn't just respond as listeners, but as doers. Father, you've probably already put people on our minds that we need to have some hard conversations with. You've probably already started to push us in the direction of some, um, some relationships that we've mishandled and mismanaged, God. Father, you know the guilt that we sometimes experiencing, wishing that we can just go back and fix what was broken, wish we could do things differently. Father, I pray that as a church we would be gracious folk, that in humility we both would recognize our deep needs that can only be satisfied by you, and in those deep needs, when someone humbles themselves enough to initiate that conversation, will we not fight to be right, fight to state our case, but will we fight to extend grace and love and mercy, God? That's what you meet us with. And Father, will we renew our hope and our trust in you that you are a mender of broken hearts, that you can restore any relationship, God? And would we acknowledge your strength and your power and your ability to do so by hitting our knees and praying to you. We pray that as a result, our church would be one full of grace and mercy and love for one another. A place where people who've been outcast can find solace by hearing about your son and placing their trust in Christ. We ask all this in Jesus name. Amen.